How is everybody? All right. Like six of you that are really awake. That's good. That's good. Hey, if you're new to the church, we um, kind of our, our thing where we kind of hang our hat is we go through whole books of the Bible and uh, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter until we're done with them. We're starting a very fascinating book this week. We, I guess we kind of started it last week. And if you weren't here last week, we did an introduction to Revelation. If you weren't here, which is crazy, let me tell you something about this book and what it does to people. Usually on Labor Day weekend, our church is down about 10%. Last weekend, we were up about 10%, which is crazy on Labor Day weekend, um, which is a fantastic problem to have that there's not very much parking and a lot of people in here, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but we're starting this book. If you weren't here last week, the introduction, I feel like is a pretty important thing to kind of go back and listen to this week if you missed it. Uh, kind of get a good idea of the different interpretations and how people look at Revelation in the scope of history and in the future and a really just kind of a, a good opening thing before we dove into, dove, is that right? Or dived, whatever. Got into <laughs> the scripture today. But today we're going to get into Revelation chapter 1. And uh, oh, let me go back there. And our focus today is this. We're going to talk about in chapter 1 the power of God, we're kind of establishing who we are receiving this revelation from. If you weren't here last week, we talked about the author of the book of Revelation, and John was the guy that wrote it down, but we said the author is really not John, the author is God. Revelation is a very unique book in the Bible that it came directly from the mouth of God, that he was communicating this to John, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly through angels and through visions and through, through uh, uh, audible things. So we talked about the author is God, but we're going to talk about the power of God and establishing that a little bit before we dive too far into the book of Revelation. And we're also going to get into just a little bit in chapter one, the responsibility of the church of Christians. We'll really get into that in chapters two and three, but we start to touch on it a little bit in chapter one. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If you have the app, the Experience Community app, if you click on service and sermon notes, all the notes are on there and all the scripture is on there. Very, very helpful. If you have a Bible, we are in the very last book of the Bible, in chapter one. And um, if you don't have any of those things, everything's going to be up on the screens for you. And I think you're going to enjoy this. Guys, we're just getting to the shallow end of the pool today, but in, and the further we go, the deeper it goes. And, and let me tell you this you are going to be shocked at how comprehensible this book is. You're going to be shocked because so many people are afraid of getting into this book, and there's so much confusion about this book. As we get into this, though it's going to take a little bit of work, you're going to sit back and say, wow, I can understand this. I can get this. You're going to be shocked at how much you can grasp this and how practical it's going to be, okay? All right, so I'm going to pray. I think you guys are going to enjoy chapter one, and uh, we'll see what happens today, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. God, we just pray that you keep your hand on us today, Lord. Open up our ears, open up our eyes, Lord. Help us, God, not just to hear your word, but to take it to heart, to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray for every church in our city this morning. We pray, God, that you uh, bless the other pastors in this community and the other people who serve in their churches, Lord, and that we can minister to our city and our county. Lord, we pray for all the nonprofits that we work with and that you bless them, God, and and just increase their, their uh, impact on our community. And Lord, once again, we just pray that you bless us, God. We pray, Lord, that all of our study today and reading your word, God, we pray that it blesses us, but Lord, we pray that it blesses you as well and that it honors you, God. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're about to start the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I broke it down into small chunks, okay? I'm going to read a little bit, and I will break it down. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Now, any of you who've read any books, I hope that all of you have read some books in your lifetime, but any of you who've read any books, most of the time when you open up a new book, there's a title page. Now, verses one and two of Revelation are kind of the book of Revelation's title page. It basically says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ written by John to the followers of Jesus Christ. So this is important to know. The revelation that we are going to be studying is exclusively Jesus's. What that means is this didn't come from the mind of a man. This didn't come from some historical thing that someone had put together. This is exclusively from Jesus's brain right to us. It is his revelation. And John is commanded to write down whatever he sees, whatever he hears, because the time is near. Now, when people get into the book of Revelation, words like near and words like soon kind of trip us up a little bit. This book was written almost 2,000 years ago, so soon doesn't really work on earthly terms. So because soon doesn't really work on our timetable, we have to assume that soon is from a heavenly perspective. And soon to God is different than soon to us. The Bible says that a thousand years is like a day to God, right? And vice versa. God is outside of time. He looks at time differently than we do. So the point of the book of Revelation is not to pinpoint the exact time or year that Jesus is coming back. The point of Revelation is to make sure that the church is ready when he does come back. Whether it's next week or whether it's a thousand years from now, the point is, is that we, the church body, are ready for his return, okay? Another thing is John is essentially a witness. Like we talked about, he's, he's the author, but he's not really the author. He's the one just taking everything down that he sees. Imagine John is kind of a witness in a courtroom. All this stuff is unfolding. God basically sits John down and says, write down what you see. Take all this down. And if you weren't here last week, one of the, the very unique things about the book of Revelation is it's the only book of the Bible that says you'll be blessed if you read it and keep what is written in it. Now listen, you'll be blessed by reading any book of the Bible. But this one specifically says if you read it and if you hear it, it is a blessing to you. So here's the thing, guys, you and I, we are the recipients of this book, and we are called to do three things as recipients of this book. We are to read it, we are to hear it, and we are to take what it says to heart. We are to take it seriously. That's our job as we go into the book of Revelation. Read it, hear it, take it seriously. Take it to heart, okay? All right, next part. John, 
to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7 is important. John says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the Almighty. So the book of Revelation opens up with the theme of grace and peace, and it ends with the theme of grace and peace. There's not a whole lot of peace in the middle, <laughs> but there's a lot of grace and peace at the beginning, and there's a lot of grace and peace at the end. Now, though the theme of grace is at the beginning and end, the word grace is only used one time, and we just read it. Right there in verse four is the only time that we see the word grace. Now, where does that grace come from? If you're in here and maybe you're a new Christian or maybe you're not a Christian, this is a very important doctrine of Christianity, and it's called the Trinity. Now, that word is not a biblical word. Now, a lot of people, when we get deep into Revelation, I'm gonna tell you multiple times that I don't believe in what the modern day church thinks is a rapture. I don't believe in that. And I'll show you later on, I'll explain that. So don't send me hate mail yet. The answers will come. But I don't believe in a rapture. That's not a biblical thing. Well, some people will say, well, Trinity's not a biblical thing either, that word. Though that word is not in the Bible, the Trinity is shown a multitude of times throughout the New Testament. Actually, as far back as the book of Genesis, we see a plurality of God. Now, we serve one God. There is only one God, one God. But God manifests himself in God the Father, the one who was, who is, and is to come, as the Son, Jesus, the faithful witness, and as the Holy Spirit. And here it says the seven spirits around the throne. I'll get to that here in a second. Now, something that's very subtle is we're reading Revelation. If you just kind of fly through Revelation, you're going to miss a ton of stuff. One of these little nuggets that we kind of see in there that it's very easy to skim over is when it describes God. Typically, we say God is the one who was, is, and is to come. Notice John reverses the order. He says the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He changes it. Why? Why would he do that? It's a subtle thing. But what John is trying to show us is God is outside of time and space. He's not confined to what we say is the past, the present, and the future. He's bigger than all of that. And that is something that is very important for us to remember as we go deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation. Time is not the same to God as it is to us. He's outside of that. He's bigger than that. It also says, we get kind of our first uh, symbolic thing that we have to, to, to uh, decipher and kind of crack, if you will. It says the seven spirits around the throne. What the heck is that? If you weren't here last week, I said a lot of people are afraid of the book of Revelation because of the symbols in Revelation. 
I also said last week, the majority of the symbols in Revelation are explained. Sometimes in the book of Revelation, they're explained, as we'll see later. And sometimes you have to go to other parts of the Bible and it explains it. This is one of those cases. Now, this term, seven spirits around the throne, is only used in the book of Revelation. But the answer to what that is, is found in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. It talks about the seven spirits of God. These are characteristics of God. And here's what they are. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, reverence, and fear. So again, in chapter one, we see this thing and people are like, whoa, the seven spirits of God, too much, right? You know, heads start exploding. People shut their Bibles and throw it out the window. I can't handle it. All you gotta do is dig a little bit, research a little bit. I hope no one's ever done that, right? Um, you research a little bit and we get the answer for this, okay? Another thing that John wants to do is he wants to establish who this king is. Who is this God, this king of kings that we're talking about? Now, if you weren't here last week, we talked about when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was exiled. The globally dominant Roman Empire had kicked him out of the Roman Empire, put him on a little island. I'll show you a map here in a second. And he was living in kind of like a solitary confinement. So John reminds the readers though, he says the king that we're serving is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to be resurrected. He has conquered death. He also says that the one we serve, Jesus Christ, is the king of all the kings on earth, showing that even the Roman Empire, where the emperor Domitian called himself God and Lord, John reminds us, and he was reminding whoever read this, that, that, that the emperor is not God. He is not Lord. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He reminded us, guys, in our day and age, when we are so fixated on politicians, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. No matter what happens politically, no matter what happens globally, Jesus Christ still sits on the throne and he's sovereign over all of it, okay? So not only is God in control, not only is he the King of Kings, not only are we reminded that Jesus Christ has it all under control, John tells us that Jesus loves us, that he has set us free from our sins by his blood. Not only that, that he has made us kingdom priests. So here's the thing as we get into Revelation. When we get into the middle of Revelation, man, there's a lot of, a lot of people die. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of famine. There's a lot of pestilence. There's a lot of awful stuff that happens. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the core of Revelation is God's love for humanity, not his hatred. So when we step back, God is a God of peace and grace and love, and Jesus died for our salvation. Not only that, he has made us heirs to his kingdom. Now, right now, that doesn't mean much. When we get to the end of Revelation and we get to see what his kingdom looks like and we become heirs to that, it's pretty beautiful, and we'll get to that later, okay? Now, if you're one of those weirdos that writes in your Bible, I'm one of those weirdos, verse seven is important. Maybe you put a little star or circle it or something like that. Verse seven essentially encompasses the entire book of Revelation. It says, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is the second coming of Jesus. 
And what we see in verse seven is the first coming of Jesus is exactly the opposite of the second coming of Jesus. Let me show you. If you go back into the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first coming of Jesus was very, very modest, very meek. Even if you're not a Christian in here, you're familiar with this, right? Born in a manger, there was more animals around him than humans. Born into a poor working class family, grew up as a carpenter and a tradesman, a very humble existence. His first coming, Jesus' first coming, very few people saw this. When he grew up and he was murdered when he was age 33, he was judged and he was punished. And people rejoiced over his defeat. I put that in quotations because Christians know the cross was not a loss, it was a victory, right? But the world saw it as a loss, right? That he had lost. The second coming of Jesus is going to be exactly the opposite. Where very few people saw it, this blows my mind, the entire world is going to see it simultaneously. Now physically that doesn't even work, right? If he comes from any angle because the world is circular, I don't know if you guys knew that or not, the world is circular, from whatever direction he comes to, there's gonna be people on the opposite side. So however Christ comes back, however that works, everyone is going to see it. It's going to be public. He's gonna come back in glory. He's gonna come back in the clouds like a king coming back. He's gonna come back and he's not going to be judged. He's going to be the judge. And he's going to judge evil people. And it says that people will mourn over his victory. They rejoiced over his defeat when he comes back the second time, they are going to mourn over his victory. Now, what does that mean? John says that when the Alpha, the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, when he returns, that people are going to be sad about that. What that means is this, and this is a very heavy passage. Revelation gives us no indication that when Jesus comes back, people are going to repent for their sins. Once he comes back, People who have not lived for Jesus are going to realize that they have made the wrong choices and they're going to be sad about it. That gives me goosebumps. And so that lets us know that we have to be, when he comes back, it, it, it's too late. We have to be ready before then, okay? So I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So this is interesting. We often think of the authors of the Bible of being like superheroes, right? And so John wants to let everyone know at the beginning of Revelation, he's not a superhero. He's just like them. He said, I'm suffering in affliction. I'm with you during the endurance. I'm with you in this kingdom. I'm just one of you guys. Now, here's the thing about early Christianity. It was very much understood in early Christianity that a suffering was a part of being a Christian. We don't like to talk about that nowadays. In fact, a lot of churches tell you that, man, if you're suffering, it's because you're doing something wrong. But suffering is a part of the Christian experience. In fact, this is the first part in the book of Revelation where it starts to talk about persecution. 
And John, who was closer to Jesus, it says in the Bible, than any of the other disciples, this guy had been boiled alive and kicked out to an island. He was being persecuted, he says, because he followed Jesus Christ. And so guys, persecution is not like being made fun of on Facebook. That's not persecution. But the book of Revelation alludes to the fact that suffering is a part of what we're all going to experience one day. And I often ask, are we ready for that? If suffering and persecution came to the United States for Christianity, I don't know how many Christians would stick to their guns. So we have to ask ourselves, do we accept suffering as a part of our faith? And some people would also ask, well, if God's such a good God, why would he let his children be persecuted? Now, I'm going to be honest. I can understand why people think that. Man, he's a good father. Like, why is he allowing people to be slaughtered in Egypt and in Sudan and in Northern Africa? And why are these awful things happening? Why are they burning down churches in different parts of Europe and in China? And what is happening? Why would God allow this to happen? Now, the mature Christian knows that the only way that we are to come out like pure gold is we have to go through some heat. You guys ever met person that have, people that have never been through anything bad in their life? These are the people we don't invite to dinner parties, right? Because there's no good conversation there, right? Boy, sometimes life is rough. Nope, always been good for me. I can't relate to that person. And so what God does in his infinite wisdom is sometimes God puts us through situations because God knows when we come out the other side, we're better. You guys ever lost a job and you're like, oh God, what's happening? And then you get a better job, right? Because God knew what he was doing. That girlfriend broke up with you and then a much better looking girl goes out with you and you're like, all right, God, awesome, right? It actually happened to me. I had an ex-girlfriend dump me right before I went out with Alicia, my wife, and I almost went back out with this ex-girlfriend. I was like, ah, no, I'm gonna go out with Alicia and here we are, right? Most beautiful woman on planet Earth. So anyways, without the events that happened to John, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. If God wouldn't have allowed him to go through suffering, he wouldn't have been kicked out of the Roman Empire and put on a solitary island to where God could could put him in the spirit and communicate this book to him. So without suffering, you and I wouldn't be sitting here studying this today. God knows what he's doing, and we just have to trust that. So here's what John was doing. It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now the Lord's day was more than likely Sunday. I was picking on my Saturday people last night, like, yeah, you guys are wrong, no. Um, (laughs) What had happened was this. Jewish people typically worshiped, they celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday. The reason why it has changed to Sunday for a lot of people is because Jesus Christ resurrected on a Sunday. So they moved their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Now here's the thing about the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the importance about the Sabbath isn't Saturday or Sunday. People have argued about that for centuries. The important about the Sabbath day is you taking some time, setting it aside to worship and connect with God. Sabbath can be a Tuesday, a Thursday, it can be whatever day you make it. The importance is the heart issue. But John was more than likely sitting on the island of Patmos. He was worshiping, however that looked. Maybe he was walking around singing Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was quietly meditating and thinking about God, whatever he was doing. In the middle of that, something supernatural happened. He became in the spirit. I don't don't like the word trance, but maybe kind of like a trance-like state. He was in the spirit. 
And while he was in the spirit, he heard a voice like a trumpet. Imagine that you're by yourself and you hear something so startling and so loud. And he hears this voice and he turns around to see what it is. The voice says this though, write down on a scroll what you're about to see. And the voice actually commanded him. He said, you're gonna write seven letters to seven different churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, these are all churches. If you were with us during the book of Acts, you've heard these names before, and I'll show you a map here in a second. These are churches that Paul either helped start or he at least ministered to, okay? And they are in what the, the area called Asia Minor. Now, let me show this to you if, you if you've never seen this map. If you went through the book of Acts, you saw this map a lot, but if you've never, never seen this, so Israel is down here on the right, bottom right. If you go straight up from Israel, right, this big piece of land up here on the top right is modern day Turkey. If you go across the Aegean Sea right there, that is modern day Greece. Now the island of Patmos lies on kind of the uh, coast, if you will, of what is modern day Turkey. Asia Minor is that western half of modern-day Turkey. All the churches in the next two chapters that we're going to study are in this geographical area, just so you guys kind of have an idea where in the world this is, okay? So when it says Asia, it's, it's not Asia that we think of Asia. It's modern-day Turkey, okay? All right, here's where it gets really, really good. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as if fired in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters." He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. <laughs> Let me geek out here for a second. So John, who knew Jesus, right? He knew Jesus while Jesus was on earth, right? It's just a human like you and I. No one had ever seen the face of God, the glorified 100% God. John turns around, and that's who's there. He is looking at God right in the face. So he also turns around, and he sees that there are these seven golden lampstands. Now, if you want to think of what these look like, if you think of what a menorah looks like, if you know any Jewish people or if you think about Hanukkah, they have seven candle menorahs. They have different kinds. That's what he was looking at, these menorahs. And they would have been in, uh, like, a, like a candelabrum in the tabernacle back in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, these represent churches. Now, look at the symbolism here. Just like a candle burns and lights up a room, the churches are to light up the community. They're to light up the world. Now, how do we know that those two things are connected? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, that the people, the Christians, the church, right, are like lights that are to be shown and light up everything around him. That's why John sees these candelabrums and he sees Jesus walking among these lampstands. Now, here's what's fascinating about Jesus. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us what Jesus looks like while he's on earth. It's funny, we have movies that depict it. I get a kick out of the ones that give him like blue eyes and a British accent. I'm like, that's probably not accurate. But anyways, <laughs> there's all these different interpretations of what Jesus looks like, but it's fascinating. The Bible doesn't tell us what he looks like. We can assume that he was probably pretty dark complected because he was a Jewish man working outside a lot and he was probably a pretty muscular guy because he worked with his hands. And, and so we can assume some things. And what John sees, though, in this instance is not literally how God looks. It is figuratively how God looks. When we see God in heaven, his eyes probably aren't going to look like flames, right? But he, he looks at these things. And so we have to give John some slack. We have to give him some grace. John is trying to describe to us what no human has ever seen. He is trying to describe to us the indescribable. And he does the best he can, okay? And this is how he starts to describe God. First, he says, it looked like the son of man. What that means is, I don't know if you guys have friends or if you ever heard people say, well, I believe God is just like this vapor in the cosmos or just this kind of energy source. No, no, the Bible says God looks like a human. We are made in God's image. So when we see God, he's gonna have arms and legs and hair and a face and he's gonna look like us or rather we look like him. So when he saw God, it looked like Jesus, right? Not exactly like he did on earth, but it resembled like the son of man. Said he had on a long robe and a golden sash. Now this is a very Old Testament high priest look. Now what that symbolizes is salvation comes from the true priest, Jesus. Our salvation comes from him. Our theology, the way we think about God comes from him. It says his hair was white as wool, white as snow. Now, what that symbolizes is it says multiple times in the Bible that people have gray hair. That's a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of respect. Jesus' hair wasn't just gray. It wasn't salt and pepper. It was white as can be, which means he holds all wisdom. Another way of saying that is he is omniscient. He knows everything. So his hair was white as can be, white as snow, because he knows everything. He demands respect. He, he has all wisdom, all knowledge. That's why his hair is white. His eyes are like a fiery flame. Now here's the thing about Revelation. God is a God of grace and love. We will see that all the way through Revelation. We will also see that God is also a God of justice. And because God's people are being tormented, because some of God's people, as we'll see in chapter two and three, say they're Christians, but don't live as Christians. There is an anger that is stirring up in God and John can see it in his eyes. There is a flame that is starting to ignite in his eyes. It says his feet were like fine bronze. Again, I love the imagery here. It gives us the illusion that he is this established king. The book of Isaiah says that the earth is God's footstool. I mean, think about it, right? That if God wants to, he can just kind of kick his feet up on earth, on this big planet that he has created. That means that he has omnipotence. He has complete and unlimited power. He knows all, sees all, he has all power. It also says his voice is like cascading waters. I love this. You know, I've heard some people say they've heard the voice of God. I've never heard the voice of God. And after studying Revelation, maybe why I haven't heard the voice of God, because maybe it would terrify me. But when, when God would speak to John, it was a voice that could not be ignored. It was a voice that had to be obeyed. It roared above everything else. 
And then it says that in his hand, he held seven stars. Now, this is another symbolic thing that it's going to give the explanation for at the end of this chapter. The, the, the stars that he's holding are not stars like the sun. It is these seven churches that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of chapters. Now, some people believe the angels are literal angels, right, and angelic beings. And I know this is how you guys think of me. Other people, the, other people think the angels are pastors, right? Anyways, the main point, thanks. The main point is that God has it in his hand. Do you see the symbolism there? God is holding the churches. I've got this. I'm in control. I'm sovereign over this. That's what the symbolism is there. Now, this is obviously symbolic. If it's not, it's terrifying. But there is a double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, again, with a little bit of digging, we know that the sword of the Lord is the word of God. So what comes out of his mouth is the ability to judge mankind. That is the sword. What comes out of his mouth is, is the truth. It is that whatever Jesus says is absolutely right. That's what the sword is coming out of his mouth. And then I love this. John says when he was looking at the face of God, it was like looking at the sun at noon. <laughs> Imagine going out today if there was no clouds in the sky and looking straight up at the sun at noon. That's what it looked like as he was looking in to the face. This wasn't just a man he was looking at. It wasn't even just an angel he was looking at. John was looking in the face of God Almighty. <laughs> Amazing. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That means he probably passed out. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see he clarifies that for us. So John says he falls down like a dead man. There was another guy in the Bible that saw God, Moses, and he also fell down like a dead man, fell down in fear at God's feet. Now, this isn't an, an unhealthy fear. It's very bothersome for me. I've heard a lot of churches, a lot of very popular kind of charismatic churches say, you don't ever need to fear God. You don't need to fear God. The Bible says multiple times in Proverbs, the beginning of all wisdom is a fear of the Lord. So if the wisest man who's ever lived said, you should have a fear of the Lord, I'm gonna have a fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean an unhealthy fear of him. That doesn't mean that we're afraid of God all the time. What it means, though, is if Jesus Christ can speak the entire universe into existence, I'm one of eight billion people on planet Earth. He can wipe me out real quick. And we need to have a proper respect of a God with that kind of power. And quite honestly, the North American church greatly lacks a fear of God. We greatly lack a respect and a reverence for God. Here's what's interesting though. Now let me counterbalance that. So though we should have a healthy fear, and John was right, you're seeing this intense of a thing, you pass out, but look what happens. The same hand that held the seven stars reaches over and puts his hand on John's back and says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. 
get up, come on. He comforts him. Look, isn't it interesting? If we are honoring God, we have no reason to be afraid of God. If we're not honoring God, you should probably be afraid of God. But if we are honoring him, there's no reason to be afraid of him. And so Jesus reminds John and he reminds us. He says, I've overcome death. Look, I'm alive. I hold the keys of death. I hold the keys of hell. I got it. I got it taken care of. Stand up, John. And so because he lives, because Jesus lives, one of the whole points of Revelation is for us to know that we can live too. The main point of John recording this book is to tell people, to tell us that Jesus Christ is the living one and that we can also live forever as long as we are in Jesus. Through Christ, I talked about last week, one of the main words of Revelation is the word overcome. Through a relationship with Jesus, we can overcome our sinful nature. Does that mean that we're perfect? No, no, no. But just like Paul said, when we are one in Christ, our sinful nature has no dominion over us. It's dead. That's what Paul says. And so John's going to remind us that we can overcome sin by being connected to Jesus. We can overcome shame. We can overcome guilt. We can find joy in this life. And of course, we will find joy in eternity with him in paradise. We will have all these things, but it is because Jesus lives. And so now, after Jesus has kind of lifted John up, right? Kind of cleaned him off a little bit, maybe hit his face when he passed out, wiped off his face a little bit. Jesus clarifies for us a couple of symbols. He says, well, the, the stars are angels, whether that means literal angels or, or, or leaders of churches. There are these angels. And then the lampstands are the churches. So he's clarified for us. So again, we've had a couple of symbols show up in chapter one and both of them easily explained. Here's the point though of the first three chapters of Revelation, and we'll really get into it next week with chapter two and three. The point of the first three chapters is this, to warn the churches, not just the seven he's writing the letters to, but to us as well, to warn the churches to deal with their internal problems or else external problems will crush them. That the church needs to deal with itself and if we don't deal with ourselves, the things of this world will crush us. What that means is, if we don't have a strong relationship with Jesus now in our private lives, right? In our home, with our spouse, with our family, with our friends, if we don't have a strong relationship, if we don't read the word of God and pray, if we are not on a solid foundation, whenever it becomes hard to be a Christian, that pressure is gonna crumble us. It's gonna break us. We're gonna give up on our faith. We're gonna step away from it. The word perseverance and endure come up so many times in the book of Revelation. We have to hold on, okay? Here's the first thing we get, though, as we start off Revelation, and this is very, very important. Chapter one reminds us who we're dealing with. When you get into the book of Revelation, I think my favorite thing about the book of Revelation is it gives us visuals of God and visuals of heaven. Heaven now and what heaven's gonna look like when we're there, okay? There's gonna be a difference. We'll talk, to, talk about that later. But chapter one gives us a glimpse of the one that this revelation is coming from, the God that knows all and sees all and has unlimited power, the creator God. 
is the one giving us this revelation. Not just that, the risen Savior, the one that has died for our sins, the one that has given us forgiveness, who holds the keys of death and hell. This is the one who has given us this revelation. Now I have to ask you, and you need to be honest with yourselves, do we have a proper reverence and fear of this God? Now a lot of us say, yes, absolutely. I fear and revere the true God. But when we have that secret sin, when we do these things that we know that God's not okay with, it shows that we really don't fear him as much as we say we do. When we treat others poorly, after Jesus says, you'll be known by how you treat others and love others. When we have bad attitudes, again, when we have that secret porn addiction on the side or we're talking to this man at work and our husband doesn't know, when these things are going on, it shows. Do you know what the Bible says? The things that are whispered in alleyways will be shouted from rooftops. God sees everything, everything. There is nothing that escapes God's eyes. Does that put a proper fear and reverence into us? I hope it does. The second thing we need to take from chapter one is this, and this is a big one. If we're going to move forward with this book of the Bible, I'm talking about you and I, guys, both of us. If we're going to move forward and get something out of this book, we have got to humble ourselves and we have to address our garbage. Because if we don't, Listen to me. It's very easy to be a Christian in the United States right now, especially in the South. It's very easy to be a Christian. But there will come a time, I guarantee you, there will come a time in this country where it will not be easy to be a Christian. When those times come, when those times come, is our faith grounded enough? Have we dealt with the dark corners of our heart enough to where when the external pressures come on that we are connected to God internally, with our hearts, can we still stand firm? Because if we don't, if we do not deal, not just with us as individuals, but the church needs to clean up its act too. If the church, talking about all of us collectively, if we are not impacting the community, if we are not honoring God in our worship services, in our communion time, in our prayer time, if we are not being the body that we need to be, when the pressure comes on, the church is not gonna make it. We've got to deal with our internal problems or external problems will crush us. The last thing is this. If we're gonna do this first point and deal with our garbage, we live in a time where it is everyone's fault except for mine. I'm divorced because my parents got divorced. I cheated on my wife because my dad and my grandfather did that too. Well, I'm broke because of the government. Ah, my job's awful because of my boss. Well, my kids hate me because it's the school's fault or it's the daycare, daycare's fault or it's all, it's everyone's fault except for ours. Now listen, church, if we're gonna be the body that God wants us to be, we have to stop shifting the blame on everyone else and we have to ask God, God, put the spotlight on me. Show me what's wrong with me. Don't blame it on everything else. Don't blame it on culture. Don't blame it on your parents because when you stand in front of Jesus Christ, you're not gonna be able to shift that blame of how you lived your life on anyone else. God's gonna look at you and say, what have you done with what I have given you? Have you been responsible? When we stand in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the judge over all people, he's going to open up the book of our life. And though my, my, my father has not been a good father to me, I'm not gonna be able to say, well, I wasn't a good dad to my kids because my dad wasn't a good, it doesn't hold water. 
Because Jesus said, I gave you my Holy Spirit, which means you can be the man that you need to be. You can be the woman you, you need to be. That God has empowered us, regardless of what our past is, regardless what has been done to us. We have to take responsibility for our actions. If you think the world sucks, you know whose fault that is? People. It's us. If you don't like the way things are shaken down, do something about it. If you don't like the turns that your life has taken, own it and ask God and say, God, I don't want to blame shift. I don't want to put on anyone else. Shine the light on the darkest corners of my heart and show me what I need to change. There may be sins in your life that you are ignorant to. The Bible talks about sins that we are ignorant to. So sometimes when you say, God, if I am doing something that is against you, that is not honoring to you, show me. Show me what I'm doing wrong. If there are past sins that you have never repented for and you don't even remember them, there have been times in my life, guys, where I've gotten down on my face and said, God, forgive me of the sins that I've done that I can't even remember. Forgive me from the, from the times when I was drunk out of my mind and high out of my mind and did awful things that I don't even remember. Forgive me of those things. Examine me, God. Examine my heart. I think it was King Solomon who said that in the book of Kings, 1 Kings. He said, examine me. Examine me, God. Here's what I ask of you today. And pardon my language. If you don't examine the dark corners of your heart, the book of Revelation will scare the hell out of you. It will scare you. It will be a scary book for those who live in darkness. It says that. It is a scary book. For, for those of us, though, who choose to live in the light, for those of us who say, God, bring me out of the shadows and into the light, expose everything about me and help me correct everything about me, for those of us who will humble ourselves, Revelation will not scare you. It will encourage you. Revelation will enlighten you and it will show you a paradise that God has for you. It will, it will, it will strengthen you. It will sharpen you. But if we choose to hide in the shadows, it's a scary book. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, Dave is going to be up here on my right, your left. If you're in here and you're a new believer, maybe you're not a believer, but you have some questions. Maybe if you're in here and, and you want to give your life to Jesus, but you, you don't even know where to start. Come up here. Dave's wearing a blue shirt. He's up here on my right, your left, towards the front of the stage. Come up here and talk to Dave. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything, there are men and women up here at the front who would love to pray for you for anything you need, guys. Job issues, relationship issues, finance, whatever you need. Come up here and let them pray for you. Now, here's the last thing as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If you're in here and you are a believer, you're a Christian, here's what I ask of you today. Every single weekend we take communion. It represents the body and blood of Jesus. We take that to remember what he did on the cross, died for our sins, that he gives us forgiveness. Now, you guys should know, in order to take communion, you have to repent. You have to ask God to forgive you. But here's what I want to ask of you today, something a little bit different. Either before you go get communion or maybe after you go take it and sit down in your seat, here's what I want you to do. 
with your mouth where you can hear yourself say it, I would love for you to ask God to examine your heart. God, put a light on me. Every dark corner, every hidden area, God, maybe even things that I'm doing wrong, but I don't even know that I'm doing them wrong. Ask God to show you those things. But here's the thing, if you do that, and he does, then you gotta address them. God, forgive me of that. God, give me the strength to take the steps to stop doing that. But if you will do that, guys, if we will just be humble and say, God, just shine a light on my soul, shine a light on my heart, I give you my word, you will be blessed by that. You don't have to be afraid of God when you're in the light. You don't have to be afraid of the book of Revelation when you're where God wants you to be. I encourage you today, ask God, examine me from top to bottom, God. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, I thank you. I love this church. God, I love this church like they're my own family. I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room, Lord. God, let us be humble. Lord, whatever darkness there may be in us, God, forgive us and, and remove it and give us strength, God. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters in this room. Take care of them, Lord. Help them to hold on and to be faithful, God. Lord, for anyone in this room who's maybe not be, uh, maybe they're not a believer or maybe they're a new believer, God, I pray that something today encouraged them and maybe provoked them to think a little bit about what's going on in their lives and in the spiritual world, God. Lord, for all the people who come up and get prayed for, God, bless them. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you so much for your word, God, and its direction and its encouragement in our life. Strengthen us as we go through this, this complicated but beautiful book of the Bible, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.